Father, we bow humbly now in your presence to seek your blessing upon our hearing of your word. Lord, you are the one who promises to open the eyes of the blind and to unstop the ears of the deaf. You're the one who promises to melt the heart of stone and to plant your word in that heart and upon that heart. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work in such things today for your name's sake and for our blessing. We come before you, Lord, as your sheep, and we ask you to feed us by your grace. Help us to understand your word and, Lord, to apply it to our hearts and lives. Lord, you might be glorified in us for Christ's sake. For it's in our Savior's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Being a father has uh, always been a, a serious responsibility. While that's implied from, I think, the very beginning, as the revelation of God unfolds in his word, it becomes increasingly more evident. By the time we're introduced to Abraham, the duties of a covenant father are already taking more direct shape in the word. About the Dead Sea, in the lowest part of the earth, cities grew up on the shores of its sparkling waters. Those cities became playgrounds of wickedness. They may have looked like beautiful resorts to Lot, but they were cesspools of sin and violence. And when the sun set, the homes and the streets were bathed in the flickering light of flaming torches and sputtering lamps reflecting the hell that had become, those cities had become, and it was not safe to walk the streets. When Jehovah had had enough and was ready to bathe Sodom and Gomorrah in a rain of fire and brimstone, he declared this in Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. He said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Here we see Abraham, a chosen leader, tasked with the command of his household and the duty to lead and encourage that household in the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Against the backdrop of the judgment of the smoldering cities, Abraham was to lead his family, living like strangers and exiles in the world, in the paths of righteousness. The book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 9 through 10 and then verse 16 tells us this, By faith he, that is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, 
whose designer and builder is God. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So here then was Abraham's duty set forth carefully by God. And it was to lead his family in the way of the Lord. And in those few words, we find the covenant father's duty to his loved ones. And this is a duty that can't be safely ignored, even if it's not fully appreciated by all of those who are involved in it. It's the covenant father's calling before the Lord. And it's a duty that has to be pursued with prayer, with study, and by action. Sometimes I suspect that you who are raising your families right now as fathers, I suspect that you and your wife, you feel at least like you and your wife are the only ones standing between your children and the sirens of sin and the hounds of hell. But you're not alone, beloved. And though their voices are loud and disturbing, the Lord has promised to be with you in this duty and all the trials that can arise from the performance of that duty. If you turn over again to 1 John chapter 4, in this passage we find these words as we continue our study here. In 1 John 4, verse 4, John writes, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. He's talking about the false prophets that he referred to previously. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So let's start with the them. The them that John is referring to are all those who are of the spirit of Antichrist. All those who deny that Jesus is the Christ and that he fulfills all the promises and all the prophecies and all the doctrines concerning him. He says, little children... Beloved of your Father in heaven, you, yes, you, are from God and have overcome them. Now, what does John mean when he writes that you Christian fathers and with them all who believe are from God or of God? Well, you can go back and reflect on Abraham and how the Lord said that he was chosen by God to this duty. Abraham didn't just fall into this position of responsibility. God chose him to that position. And all the disciples of Jesus are chosen ones. That is, they have their origins in the love and electing grace of God through Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. 
and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. So that confession of faith that arises out of the heart of the believer is a gift from God. And it's a work of the Spirit in the heart of that person. And they are chosen to have that Spirit and that understanding. Every aspect of what makes you a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, begins with him and his love. And that's why John says that we're little children, we are out of him, or we come out from him. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, I want you to take special note of the phrase, or the two words, he has, which is referring to this is what God has done. So in Colossians 1.13, it says, first of all, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It's not something we have done. It is something He has done to us and for us and in us. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. If we turn over to chapter 2 of Colossians, beginning in verse 13, you read this. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So when John says that we are of God... He is reflecting this concept, this idea that all of this has come to us because of what he has done, what he has done for us, what he has done in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you are from God, John says then, you have overcome the spirit of Antichrist and all who are of that spirit. So if you're of him, you have overcome this spirit. That is, you have already conquered and subdued or prevailed against them by obeying God's commands and honoring the teachings of his word, as uh, John Hendrickson puts it. You, you have overcome, and you're in a state of, of, uh, of being an overcomer if you're in him and of his spirit. So John says in 1 John 5, 4, the next chapter, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. There is a a calm confidence, as A.T. Robertson puts it, in the final victory that we have in Christ. When he speaks of us being an overcomer, there's, there's not an anxiety to that. It is a calm confidence that stems from the fact, as John points out here, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The reason we're overcomers is because he that is in you, the spirit that is in you, is greater than the spirit that is in the world. The victory beloved, isn't of you and me, but of God and God at work in us. The Lord warns by his prophet Jeremiah, and this is Jeremiah chapter 9, 
beginning in verse 23. In Jeremiah 9, 23, we read, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The idea here, or the concept of he that is in you being greater than he that is in the world is really illustrated by passages like the one where Jesus speaks of the mustard seed, which starts out as the smallest of seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In the same sense that a tree in which birds can come and nest is larger and greater and sturdier and more fruitful than grass, so is he that is in you greater than he that is in the world. I don't know if that comparison makes sense to you, but it's in that same sense. Just like the grass differs from the tree, so he that is in you differs from he that is in the world, that spirit that is in the world. But I think there's even a better comparison here. I don't know if everybody is familiar with what a kazoo is, but uh, many are. A kazoo is an instrument that you blow through and hum at the same time, and there's a little membrane in there that vibrates, and it kind of sounds like an instrument, um, depending on who's blowing the kazoo. But the difference would be between the kazoo and a trumpet. If you've ever been in a room where a trumpet is being played by somebody who is gifted, um, you know the trumpet can just make your ears ring. It's so loud. The kazoo can't do that, no matter how hard you blow and how loud you hum. It's not the same. There's such a difference between those two instruments that they can't hardly be compared together. And that's the idea here. He that is in you is so much greater than he that is in the world that a comparison really can't be made. There's a connection here with the idea, actually, in the way John speaks, of loudness. And he suggests the idea that he that is in you is louder, more magnificent in voice than he who is in them. That is, he that is in the world. And that's where your confidence comes from. And it gives us the hope that we can do by genuine love and, and obedience what those of another spirit can never hope to do, and that is gain the victory. We believe that we can have the victory not because of who we are and, and, and our own strength and our own ability, but because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. That's why we're overcomers, because of Christ in us. Now, in verse 5, John goes on, and he says this, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And once again, as you really find throughout this epistle, John is quoting 
Jesus, quoting the Savior. He does it again and again. The, the truths that he brings forward here are truths that he has heard Jesus speak. Um, you can look at Jesus' words in his great uh, pra- priestly prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17. In verse 14, Jesus says there, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. They hate me, they don't hear me, they don't hear you. Those who are driven by the spirit of Antichrist are from the world. In contrast, the disciples of Christ who are from or of God. And to those without Christ... The world, beloved, is everything because it has to be, because they don't have anything else. So the world must be everything to them. And I believe that there is more to the word of God in these texts than than maybe easily comes to, to, to sight without study at least. I believe that there's more here, and there's more of the words of words, more to the words of God in Genesis three, than is usually accepted. Um, when God said to Abraham, or rather to Adam, this in Genesis three nineteen, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, obviously, that refers to the decay of the body and death. But there seems to be something deeper implied here. And it sort of comes up again in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection, and he's talking about Christ being the Redeemer and and saving us and, and our being like Adam and then finding new life in Christ. And he says this in verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, or the way that King James puts it, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, or the man who is earthy, so also are those who are of the dust, or earthy. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Fallen men and women are not just returning to the earth because they're dying, but they're earthy by nature, is the the thing that the scripture sets before us. That is, they're earthly-minded, as Paul puts it. The earth is referred to 69 times in the book of Revelation. And those who wail at Christ's coming are called the kindred's or the tribes of the earth. They are associated with the earth. They love the earth. This world is their world. It's all, it's all that they have hope in. It's all that they're a part of, this world. And God's judgment is described as falling on those who have settled in and on the earth as their permanent and only dwelling place. In the end, these earth dwellers, as Revelation calls them, John calls them there in Revelation, are described as crawling into caves and hiding among the rocks of the mountains, and in the end, crying for the earth itself to cover them up, to bury them, so that they will not have to face the judgment of God. 
They're earthy in a very organic, very real sense. That, that earthiness is who they are. It's what they are by nature. And all of this seems to reflect the strange and tra- tragic attachment that John speaks of here in 1 John chapter 4 when he says that those who are of the spirit of Antichrist are from or out of the world. It's, it's, it's who they are. It's what they are. And notice those next words. They speak from the world. So they're out of the world, and then they speak from the world. They're of it, and they speak from it or out of it. And therefore, they receive an audience or a hearing by all who are of the world. It tickles their ears. It attracts them. They're worldly. The world is everything to them. So when a false prophet stands up and speaks to them out of the world, that sounds good to them. That sounds right to them. It's what they want to hear. In short, those who are of the spirit of Antichrist, they find a happy and receptive audience among the worldly. And you don't need to wonder, beloved, why sinful concepts and ideas gain such traction in the world. You you wonder sometimes, how can people think that way? Well, because they're earthy, because they're worldly. That's why they can think that way. It sounds right to them. There is a natural harmony there to them. It's no wonder that you see the sorts of things that have recently gone on, for example, on the White House lawn or at Dodger Dodger Stadium or in the boardrooms of corporations. It's the natural order of things. They're worldly. They're earthly. So when they hear worldly things, it appeals to them. And here you are, Christian fathers and all believers. You're strangers and pilgrims on the earth, in this world, looking for a city whose founder and maker and builder is God. And as we said earlier, you fathers are standing between your children and the relentless voices of the world being broadcast at them by every means possible from every direction imaginable. But what is the hope that you'll be heard above that din? The world has almost every medium at its its hand and under its control. And it can continually broadcast those things in ways that you can hardly find a way to protect your children from. What is the hope? The hope is that he that is in you is louder, more majestic in voice than he that is in the world. The question is, how do we know God will be heard? The fact that he that is in you is louder and more effectual is how we can hope. Man lives not by bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. David says in Psalm 29, verse 4, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. 
the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. John then says this in verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John starts here by saying again that there's a unity between God and his people. We're from him. We're out of him. You are his and he is yours. Just as the worldly have their own ready audience, so does God. So does the Savior. Jesus said of those who rejected and opposed him while he walked this earth, If God were your father, you would have loved me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. This is John chapter 8 in verse 43. Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convinces me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Hendrickson says, The false prophets are from the world. They derive their principles, zeal, goals, and existence from the world of hostility in which Satan rules as prince. Furthermore, their teachings, opinions, and values are atheistic and anti-Christian. Later, Jesus would say this, and this is John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they know me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So John says here, whoever knows God listens to us. Every Christian parent prays for and looks for that godly ear among his or her children. But John makes a clear distinction here. There are those who listen and those who don't. And it's by this, says John, that we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. As we close, I want to return to that image of the covenant Christian father standing between his family and the world. In that position, knowing that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world, what are we to do? Well, first of all, and most importantly, we're to pray. There's only one perfect Father, and you can't do this without Him. You cannot stand between your children and the world without Him. You need His grace, you need His strength, you need His blessing to carry out that duty. You need it because you're going to come short and you're going to fail and you're going to uh, sin 
before him and sometimes before your children. And you need to lay those sins on Jesus. You need to confess them, repent of them, and turn from them, and look to the Lord to guide you in the paths of righteousness. Secondly, you need to pray because he can reach the heart that you can't. This is such an important part of parenting, but specifically this morning, because it's Father's Day, we'll refer to it as Father's. He can reach the heart that you can't. And so the way to reach the hearts of our children is like this, more effectively than like this. Not to say that there's not a responsibility to confront them directly and to encourage them and instruct them and teach them and so on. But to be sure that you're reaching your, their hearts, it has to be to God, to them. That he'll make effectual what you're doing. That he'll guide you and direct you. Every experienced parent knows the, the wonder, especially if, they have, if you have more than one child, the wonder of how different children in the same family can be. And what necessarily works with one doesn't work with another. And you have to be able to change in the way you approach those things. It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. And you need the wisdom and the direction of God to be able to know where that adjustment needs to be made and how to make it and to do it wisely and prudently and effectually. All of that rests in the hands of God working through you and in you by grace. And you need to be praying for the wisdom to be able to make those adjustments. In Ephesians chapter 6, it's important that you make the connection here and I mention this every time I deal with Ephesians chapter 6 practically because it's so important. When you get to the section that's talking about putting on the whole armor of God, everything before that has to do with you and your relationships within your family. So when Paul then says, and put on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to stand... He's not talking about so that you can fight the great fight in the ecclesiastical battle for the truth. He is, but not in the way people usually think. He's talking about so you can stand the great ecclesiastical battle for your family, for your relationships with one another, for how husbands and wives should communicate together and live together, and how children should live with their parents and how parents should treat their children. And Paul then says... So you need to put on the whole armor of God so that you can do this thing that God has called you to in the context of your families and your relationship together. And how does all of that end? After he talks about putting on the whole armor so that you can stand and so on, how does it end? Well, verse 18, Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What's he saying there? In the whole contest of fighting for your family and serving the Lord in the, in the context of your relationship with your wife or your husband, with your brothers and sisters, with your parents, you need to be fully armed but that's not enough. 
you have to be praying in the Spirit with all prayer and all supplication. And you have to do that alertly. Not just passively from time to time saying, oh yeah, and make me a good father. Or, oh yes, make me a faithful son or daughter. Or, yes, make me a good wife. Or, make me a good husband. No, alertly you need to be praying for this. Persevering in it. And what is perseverance? It's labor. Easy labor? No, hard labor. And the call here is to persevere in prayer as you put on this armor so that you can be the father you need to be. Or you can be the son or daughter that you need to be. Or you can be the husband that you need to be. Or the wife you need to be. Or even in that context, he talks about the employee or the employer you need to be. You need to strap on that armor and then pray, pray, and pray again. Making all supplication for all saints. That is not just praying for yourself, but for everybody. Praying for yourself, if you're a father, for your wife, for your children, for other people's families. All of it needs to be brought constantly before the Lord. The second thing to do is to proselytize. Are we allowed to say that? Proselytizing is a bad thing, right? You don't want to do that. It's not a bad thing, especially not in this context. You don't want your children being the disciples of the world. You want them being the disciples of Jesus Christ. And when you're talking about proselytizing them here, it's winning them away from the lure of the world and to Christ. Teach them God's word. Be there as their father. Not just making sure that they're taught, but teaching them yourself. And then, after working to teach them God's word, then proselytizing involves begging, cajoling, persuading, preaching, and correcting. It's a big job. You beg them. Please, please don't listen to this world, but listen to Christ who loves you. Listen to God who gave his son for you. Listen to me who loves you and cares for you. Cajole, kind of an interesting word. Come on, don't be satisfied with the things of the world. Look at the beauties of Christ. Persuade, preach at times. Now, you don't want that to be overbearing. You don't want to be known as the preachy father. But you don't want to be known as the father who doesn't preach at all. And correct. And that involves discipline. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 3, it says this. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. 
You want a good description of a father's carrying out his duties to his children? You'll see it right there in that passage. I was caring for them when they didn't even know I was caring for them. And I bent down to them to bring them to myself. In this case, to bring us to God. The third thing is practice. Be a man who hears the word and lives it before them. Condemn sin, oppose our encourage righteousness, and live consistently with those lessons. It is required, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2, that stewards be found faithful. And the fourth thing, pray again. Pray again. After you've prayed, and after you've proselytized, And after you've been consistent, pray again. Pray again. Pray for yourselves. For the strength and the grace and the knowledge and the wisdom that you need to serve God in this calling. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And you can't bear the fruit of covenant fatherhood without Christ working in you and through you. But the prayers have to reach out beyond that, especially as we think about the world that we're living in today. We need to pray for your fathers and not just have fathers praying for themselves, but you children need to be praying for your fathers, young or old, Secondly, you need to be praying for fathers. Pray for the common grace of the Lord to fall upon our culture so that fathers will take their responsibilities. They'll rise up and they'll respond to the, to the things that they're called to by being made fathers. You want to go beyond that You want to pray for redeeming grace for those fathers. Because it's not just enough that they acknowledge that they're fathers. They need to be fathers who understand what fatherhood is. And they can't understand that unless they see it through the Lord. So be praying that the the gospel will go out with, with power among fathers. Fathers that you know. When you see a father who is not carrying out his responsibilities and his duties to his family, and he's doing that because he's not of the Lord, pray for him. Pray for the opening of his heart, the opening of his mind to the truth of God's word. He's not hearing it because he's not of it. He's of the world. But you pray that the Lord will change him and change his heart and make him a man, not of the world, but of God, so that he can then take his family And begin the work as a covenant father of bringing that family into the truth of the kingdom of God. We're in a day when we need to be praying for common grace. And for particular grace. Because it's needed like never before. It's so easy to look at parents who are not fulfilling 
their responsibilities just in general, let alone a godly context, and kind of saying, aren't they awful? And what we really should do is fall on our knees and say, Lord, please have mercy on that family. Have mercy on that father. Let your word and your gospel take root in the life of that family and change that sad and tragic situation by your grace. Prayers are to be offered for all men, Paul says. And it's part of our duty as we look out over the world to pray for fathers. Not just those we know and love, but those who are out there struggling, who are in darkness, who are lost, who are hopeless, praying that God would have mercy on them, even as he's had mercy on us. Because the only reason you're a covenant father and equipped the way you are is because, like Abraham, God chose you for that job and then equipped you for it by his grace. Let's pray. Father, please bless your word to our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for every father here. And I pray, Lord, that they will have a true sense that they're not alone, but they are with you, and they're out of you. And they are overcomers, not by their own strength, but by you in them. You, the one who is greater than he is in the world. And pray, Father, for the children under their care. Let them listen to their parents. Let them listen to their fathers. Let them pray for their fathers. Let them love their fathers. And let them see there an example that will lead them as they move forward in their lives so that they too may glorify you and enjoy the covenant promises. Oh Lord, we pray for those in our society who are forsaking their duties who are ignoring what it means to be a father. Lord, who have no idea what it means to be a faithful father. And Lord, we pray for the return of common grace to our land and to our culture. And we pray, Lord, even more specifically, for the redemption of lost souls. Lord, help us to be a faithful witness in the way we carry ourselves, in our readiness to bear testimony for Christ. And Lord, may we see a harvest of souls out of the fathers around us in such a way that will glorify you and further the work of the kingdom and bless this nation. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name, thankful for the forgiveness of our sins as fathers, and anxious, Lord, that by his strength and power we might be faithful. Amen.